Okay, we're, we're in business. Um, one of the things that I wanted to um, touch back from last week was sort of an understanding of how the church is organized, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, you'll, you'll remember that the kingdom of God is, how many of you are at first? Okay, good. Okay, so he was basically talking about the upside-down kingdom, how that God used all of his energy and resources to bless others so that they could then use all their energy and resources to bless others. And so it became an exponential growth model. And the kingdoms of this world have the exact opposite. They're very hierarchical. So whereas the church uh, in the first century was built on the kingdom of God, when Constantine decided to legalize Christianity, he flipped it back on its head because he wanted the power of this world to be emulated in the power of the church. So we end up with a hierarchical model where you have the pope at the top, um, then he is serviced by his cardinals. And then beneath the cardinals we have archbishops, and then we have bishops, and then we have priests and monks, and then the laity underneath it. Um, the, they exercised power um, over one another, not for one another. And one of the things that is uh, perhaps unusual about the Pope today is that he has refused to do so many of the things that are this model, and he has decided to um, to display using his strength and energy to bless people, not for them to bless him. And so it's it's refreshing to us to see that happen. Now, um, as, as Lee uh, spoke of today, um, the, the, irony, the irony, the satire of this world is that uh, Jesus came to flip power on its head and uh, it got him killed because the powers of, that were at the time were threatened by that. And the irony of it was that they were the ones that looked foolish. And there is no more Roman Empire. And there is no more Roman Empire. Um, <clears throat> the, the vestiges of Roman architecture were more or less during the Gothic period, um, they, they blended away. You don't see Doric capitals or uh, Ionic capitals or Corinthian capitals. You don't see the orders of the, the Roman Empire in Gothic structures. But um, it is ironic <coughs> that the teachings of Plato had such an influence on the uh, church powers of the day and on church structures. So whereas he taught that light and color and height uh, were 
the things that lifted a man into the ethereal, uh, these were put into practice, mainly because by the time of the 11th century, they had the engineering know-how to be able to create these. And you might recall from Emily that the Romanesque buildings uh, that were built after Rome was destroyed, it wasn't that they were Roman, it was that they had certain shapes like the barrel arches, the groin, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and that they were using uh, capitals at the time uh, on the top of their columns. Um, but they were bulky, really, really bulky. The walls were bulky, uh, all the elements were bulky because that's the technology that they had at the time. Um, the Gothic architecture did not receive its name, Gothic, until the Renaissance. And the Renaissance looked back with disdain at this style of architecture. Uh, and they gave it the goth name because so many of the um, people uh, who had destroyed the Roman Empire were goths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they named the, the end of the Roman forms gothic. It was a put-down, but um, even though it is so imbued with so much of uh, Plato and his teachings, it is there is something about it that when you walk in, you your mind is lifted very intentionally to to knowing the awe and the mystery of the living God. Okay. So, um, uh, one of the things I wanted to, to I, I remember going into Notre Dame in Paris for the first time and being really offended. Just thinking, how in the world could they break the backs of all these poor people to erect something that was just so gorgeous? And I was very offended by that. I didn't know at the time, there were many streams of income to the Catholic Church for the building of these fabulous cathedrals. And um, by the way, a cathedral, you know how we talked about the basilica in Rome before Constantine, um, were places of where men could gather and um, you, could, you could bring any kind of a problem into the basilica, and either a judge or the emperor would be there <clears throat> to help solve them. And they were just enormous buildings. They had lots of little enclaves around so that you could have many groups there at the same time. So it was a civic building. When, um, <clears throat> when Constantine legalized Christianity. He took the basilica that his brother-in-law, who he de had defeated, he gave the, that basilica to the church for their use. So the apse where the emperor would have stood or sat um, 
was at the very far end, the eastern end of the building. And so um, when we think of a cathedra, it's, it's a chair, a very large chair. And the emperor would have sat in it, or the judge, so forth. So basically, um, he gave it over to the church, and so the head of the church would have sat where the apse was in the cathedral. And then there would have been certain chairs in a semicircle circle for uh, the elders to sit and so forth. Um, what makes the difference between a... Um, Basilica today is a dispensation from the Pope. There must be some reason for it to be extra special, not just a church um, and not just a cathedral, but it, it has to be designated by Vatican as a basilica. But now if you have a cathedral as a opposed to a church, the cathedral has the cathedra, that chair. And it is always uh, in honor of the bishop. So the bishop has been appointed by the, the pope, and he sits in that chair, and therefore is the, the church then becomes a cathedral. Okay? And, um, and then uh, a, a regular church, like a parish church, is uh, headed by... The, the head priest uh, and, the, and those that are with him. So, um, <clears throat> so you have the Vatican here, and then you have the um, cardinals, uh, which are appointed, and then you have the bishops. And the bishop is in charge of many different parishes and then the parishes are run by the priest. And then below that you have the monasteries, and then you have uh, uh, convents, and then the laity. So in order for, uh, in medieval times, how, what was their social order? Do you remember what it was called? Bunny chance. Feudal, feudalism. And so basically, you had noblemen who were responsible for everyone else. <laughs> so, um, a, like a nobleman would sit in um, in power, and then all of the people underneath him would use all of their energy and all of their resources to build up the power and the strength of the nobleman. The nobleman then would use all of his energy and resources to build up the power of the king. Now the king had a very close relationship with the church. And um, in order to cement their relationship and their power, they would give the second born male to the church. So the firstborn male in any nobleman's family would have been the sole, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, heir, thank you, of the, the name and the fortune, the land, etc. 
and then the second born was given to the church. Now, when the, they did so, they were given, the church was given a gift of lands or uh, money. And if it was land, then the monasteries uh, would be able to work that land. And the prophets were given by the, an abbot was the head of the monks. So the, ad, the, the, the richer the, um, the uh, monastery was from working the lands, then they would give the money through the abbot to the bishops. And so it was in the best interests of the bishops uh, to have abbots that were able to produce from the lands because um, it made them so wealthy. Steve, I can't read your face. What are you thinking? Oh, that's a mystery to me, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just wanted to check and see if I, if I was no, on track. I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm, 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 I'm agreeing with you. Good, okay. okay, okay, good. So, um, now this is, this is my understanding at the moment, okay. <laughs> uh, it is, it's so hard for me as a Protestant and as a member of the Church of Christ to even fathom any of this, that uh, I'm always open to learning more. So if you know something that I'm not aware of, please share that with us. As a member of the Church of Christ, you're open to learning more. Yeah, <laughs> actually I am. <laughs> um, okay, so this was a revenue st stream for the bishop to be able to build. So he got, there were um, three streams of income as far as I know at this point in my life. There was the king who would grant uh, monies to the bishops. Um, there were these incredible revenue streams from the monks at the, and the monasteries and not so much from the convents, but mostly from the monasteries. And then finally, there was a taxation um, on the people. And the people's lives were hard enough as it was. Uh, it was it's really kind of pathetic uh, how, how little joy they had in their lives. The church did uh, create monthly festivals so that there was a little joy in their lives, but because their lives weren't their own, they belonged to the noblemen, uh, they were very disenfranchised and uh, had very uh, high poverty levels. And so it's really even hard to imagine what kind of taxation they would have been given. So the biggest benefit to the church of the, the people that were in this feudal system was to afford them a uh, absolution from um, greed, um, okay. uh, oh goodness, purgatory. Oh, 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 I see. Yes, I couldn't think of the name, but to to give them a way out of purgatory, they told them that if they would work 
in the building of the cathedral that their sins would be removed. So they had a free work source. Although many, many, many of the churches actually paid those workers. But the biggest advantage to the workers was the ability to absolve themselves of sin so that they didn't spend as much time in purgatory. Okay? So they weren't encouraged to have a relationship with God. No, it wasn't so much that. But with the, with the priest or <coughs> the bishop or the pope, not a relationship as much, but to, to follow what they were commanding them to do. Exactly. And now, at this point in uh, religious history, the, the power of the church was the most important thing. Okay? It, the power and authority of the church. That so was this model, the kingdom of the world. Okay? Oh, sure. Okay, so um, think of the whole time of feudalism. It would be that whole ent- entire time. Oh, good question. You don't have to have an exact number. I'm trying, I th- I'm thinking that feudalism came in probably around 800 okay. and lasted until the Renaissance. Until what? The Renaissance. 1400s? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when it really started to break down. Uh, now, it started breaking down before the Renaissance. But um, so when we're talking about Gothic architecture, we're typically talking about the 11th, 12th, 13th century. Okay. And the Gothic um, architecture actually began in France. And since France was, at some points in its history, a part of England and was ruled by England, that's one of the reasons why there's such incredible Gothic structures in England. For example, King John um, had a son... He, he was very much of a miserly. He loved his, to count all the money that came through from taxing the people. And his son, Henry III, um, took that money and built Westminster and some the, the Gothic forms. Now, interestingly enough, um, I'm, I'm really going forward in time. When, uh, during the 18th century, I mean the 19th century, when... Queen Victoria was ruling. Um, revivals of different styles were the big thing. And so she and her husband Albert, uh, since it was sitting right next to Westminster, they built the parliament to look Gothic. Okay? So it's not, it wasn't truly built in the 11th, 12th, and 13th century. It was built in the 19th century to look like that. Okay? Now, um, there were certain themes that the, the builders and uh, those that were designing the, the cathedrals were really uh, completely enamored with scenes from Re- Revelation. And they seized on this idea of the new heavens and the new earth. And so a great deal of the design details, which we'll go over in just a minute, were informed 
by this idea of a new earth. And so many of the forms that you see are taken from nature. Leaves, buds, full-blown uh, flowers, vines, etc. So a lot of what you will see is teaching the people that can't read, that were under uh, feudalism, that they were pointing their lives back to God and to the future of a new heaven and a new earth. Um, also, another thing that was very, very big was the veneration of um, Jesus' mother, Mary. And there were, there's all kinds of symbolism that is wrapped up in her. Another theme from Revelation was um, the 12, um, not, not, not just the 12 apostles, but also the 12 kingdoms, tribes of Judah. And so these are themes that you'll see a lot. And then martyrdom was another theme. So you see a lot of uh, martyrs and the veneration of saints. Now, uh, I think uh, Mimli had already covered that in the second century, people wanted to be associated with someone who had died at the hands of martyrdom. And so they would create little canopies and places to worship so that they could be close to those who had given their lives. Well, it just expanded, probably due to um, uh, moving from the upside-down kingdom of God to the kingdom of this world. They, um, they felt like the power was in the object itself. And so they became, especially Helen, who was um, the mother of Const Constantine, was really big into this. So she made a pilgrimage to Palestine and uh, discovered the cross and the nails and created a, a really huge canopy <laughs> to celebrate that. And, and it was called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because she believed that she had found the place where he was buried. And there, uh, so you can go, the most frightening experience of my life, and I don't think I'm being exaggerating, was going to that church. There was such a crush of people that I, I could not, I couldn't go forward, I couldn't go back. I, it, it was just absolutely terrifying. Um, but it is for centuries, well, millennia, people have made pilgrimages to this church so that they could uh, see where he was buried, according to Helena, and to be close to the relics of the cross and the nails. Um, this expanded, of course, into... Uh, um, especially when Constantine moved Christianity and the Roman government to Constantinople. Then they were closer, a little bit closer, and so they began to find relics and venerate them. And thus, 
began to have the pilgrimages. Then you had the crusades, which were a very sordid and very shameful time of life in the lives of uh, Christianity. Um, terribly sordid. So that brings us, um, I think I, the main thing I wanted to be able to kind of lay the foundation is where in the world they got the money to build these fabulous cathedrals. So I want to take you today to Paris and two of my very favorites uh, are on the same island. So how many of you already been to Paris? This is going to be, <laughs> okay, oh, well, this is going to be kind of a repetition for you guys. But you went and go to Notre Dame. You know, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that you'll want to know is that almost every city <laughs> has a Notre Dame. A Notre Dame means Our Lady, and it's in veneration of Mary. And um, so, when you say Notre Dame, you kind of have to say the Notre Dame of the city. So I'll be referring. To Notre Dame is Notre Dame of Paris. But from this point forward, we'll just assume that that's what I'm talking about. We'll just keep going. Can I ask you one other question? Yeah. You were talking about where they got the money. Where did they get the, all the stone and all the... Oh, that's a good question. Were okay. They, that was local stone? Yes. Uh-huh. It was quarried, quarried locally. Um, of course, in, in successive they uh, centuries... They had to go to Italy for a lot of marble, mm -hmm. the Carrera marble in particular. But um, Notre Dame is made from French limestone. Okay. And f the first, first several times I ever saw it, it was just covered with soot. And so I thought it was gray. And when I went back um, in 2012, I literally gasped when I saw it, because it is a beautiful, warm, rich color. And it, when the sun hits it, it just gleams. It's just so warm. I was, I was totally shocked by that. So good question, very good question. Um, oh, that was one of the other things that was the advantage of the nobleman. If he had the land where the stone was quarried, then he could make a lot and then donate a lot back to the building of it. Okay, so this is the island that was originally known as Paris, only it was originally known as the Ile de, de la Ch huh? Isle of the City. Isle yes, the, city. the Isle of the City. That was the original name. And Notre Dame is the predominant structure on the on this end of the island and the palace is the, the predominant on this end of the, the island and um, so we're going to talk a little bit about Notre Dame and then we're going to walk up to Saint Chapelle and look at oh that's a very good question Bump the size of the church property. Yeah. The whole island, even with Notre Dame, is pretty big. Yeah. It's kind of a lot. If you took this, I agree that this uh, 
Yeah, that we're on. We're sitting about probably 12 acres, that's about it. Yeah. It doesn't take long to walk it. But you want to wear good walking shoes. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the most unusual things about Notre Dame is that it only has really one spire. Typically, you would have a spire on this tower and a spire on this tower. And, um, but the face of it used to be in front of all kinds of dwellings. And it wasn't until the 19th century that they cleared out all of the dwellings of the people and made this piazza so that you could walk up into it. Um, the, there are three portals that go into the cathedral. And, and I might just kind of remind you that they always face west because the altar or the apse of the building always faces east. Mm -hmm. um, that was something they got from paganism, but just adapted into uh, Christian architecture. The, the large pointed arch um, has one, two, three, four uh, inter, inter mm, like concentric circles, but it only concentric lancelot archets, plus um, the outside band that transverses it. And this is known right here as the tympanum. Um, the tympanum was what we couldn't seem to pronounce last week. <laughs> um, these are, uh, as you can see, since it's the Church of the Lady, this is Mother Mary and Baby Jesus, and then you have um, the uh, uh, the kings and um, and prophets and uh, apostles, um, so, and so forth. Um, a lot of saints are pictured on these sides, and. Uh, you would almost need a guide for a week to ferret out all the symbolism of the, the people that are pictured in each of these three uh, portals. Then you've got a lintel, and a lintel spans from here to here, and that ends, of course, into the jams, but it's supported also by this piece, which is called the Tremu. Hi, Divi. I apologize. <laughs> We're glad you're here, Divi. So, um, so this is the uh, Tremu, and this is these are the jams, and then this is the lintel. So they took that basically from uh, Egyptian archite architecture, where the first to do jams and lintels, and and it supports the jams, of course support the lintel. So those are the pieces of it. Now, uh, one of the things that makes Notre Dame interesting is that not only do they have the themes of Our Lady, um, but they also have, each of these are kings of Israel. 
and so they they're wearing the crowns now when you go inside you're, you're going through the portal and uh, this is the exterior you see this rose window right here so this is the rose window this the the um, organ pipes and then you begin to see the transverse arches that support the structure and then you begin to see the groins and the ribbed vaults so the groin was invented by the Romans and they discovered that if they would reinforce the shape of the groins with um, the ribs that it would it would uh, allow them to go higher and that was a really good thing for gothic architecture um, these little uh, finials at the at the juncture of the rib vaults are called bosses and I have no idea why bosses and they're decorative um, and then uh, you have the three-story construction that we'll talk about in just a minute but I wanted you to be able to see the exterior and the interior side by side um, another feature of like for example the windows because you had the lancet arches and they discovered that you could support more weight if you had the lancet arches than the Romanesque arches. Okay, so it carried, you could carry more weight. And so uh, the trefoil was a very important symbol of the Trinity. It was one piece, but three. Uh, and then you began to have more than that. So this is a perfect example of the trefoil. And then uh, you could have four quatrefoil, cinquefoil for five, sette foils for uh, for six, and so forth. Okay, um, so this is an, an example of the trefoil. It's C's for six, set for six. You're right. It's when I said it, I thought that. <coughs> so thanks for saying that. Uh, and then you have cusps. These are these little. Are called cusps. Makes you think about going to the dentist. I mean, all this dental terminology. Really? I had never thought of that before. Thanks, Debbie. <laughs> okay. Uh, so here's a quatrefoil because it has the four parts, and you'll see it along the balustrades right here. And then you can see this one is two, four, six. Uh, flanked by the trefoils. So, and how many of us have sat in grass and looked for four leaf clovers? Yeah, a lot of us. Yeah. And they for change. And I haven't found one yet. <laughs> okay, these are finials, and finials sit on the top of the lancet arches, and they're not to be confused with the spire, because this is just like a, a finial on a lamp. Okay. Um, these are crockets. Don't ask me why they call them crockets, but they're basically little leaves, and they 
they are on the edges um, of um, the, the structures and it goes back to this new heaven, new earth. So they're, they're trying to create this uh, garden feeling. It does. I, I read somewhere that they wanted the, the birds because they thought that would be God's blessing. But that's the first time I've ever read that. <laughs> okay, now I want to tell you a little bit about the water spouts because they had to have a way to move the water in such a way that it wouldn't pool and, and create more weight on the building. So the gargoyles were actually the water spouts, okay? And so the water would come out of their mouths and, and descend onto the ground, uh, thus removing the weight. Now, to... Kind of like a, a, the first gutter system. It was, actually, yeah. Okay, so now these are grotesques. Grotesques were, I think they were kind of tongue-in-cheek, to be honest. Um, but they were there to ward off evil spirits. So you have to know that in the absence of the Word of God, they were surrounded by superstition. Okay, so these are the grotesques that sit atop Notre Dame. This is a gargoyle. Now this, <laughs> is it this one? Oh, no. It's this one that just cracks me up. I, that's why I wonder if they had some sort of tongue-in-cheek when they were doing it. Um, I guess he's got his, he's sticking out his tongue. Can you tell? Yeah. Okay. You know, I think about what architects have to do today. Uh-huh. Where they have to think of so many things, mm -hmm. the inner workings, mm -hmm. whether it's electrical or plumbing or whatever. And we just look at it and go, oh, a pretty house. <laughs> And I, I look, I mean, I see Notre Dame, and it takes your breath away. Yeah. But I never knew any of this stuff. Oh, good. I just appreciated you. And, and yes, the yes. And of everything. And, and that's what they wanted you to see. They wanted you to see the awe. Because when you enter Notre Dame or enter Saint-Chapelle or any other Gothic mm -hmm. structure, they want you to have this overwhelming sense of the awe of God, that he is so much bigger than we are. And I think that's one reason why Gothic architecture is associated with uh, spirituality, if you will, because you're thinking outside yourself. You're not being so individualistic. You're, you're being God-focused. Debbie. And, and Tommy, like the convent, I mean, I've never been to Notre Dame. I studied French for three years, but I've never set up, you know, never been. But I think back to the first time I came into Autocrete, and um, I was kind of told that my section was back here to the Baptist, the Ed Roper group. Oh, uh, so, okay, okay. So they still sit back there, and then I got the courage to move up so mm -hmm. I could move this. And it, all of a sudden, I noticed beautiful windows. And then the Otter Creek, I've been here enough seasons, want to know that they changed those 
wooden things with the candles, like they'll be here mm-hmm. and then they'll be gone. Then they'll mm-hmm. reappear. And then, I, I'm not sure what calendar they use for those, but it keeps you looking up. And thank goodness mm-hmm. God gave the creativity to people and to the Baptists that built this sanctuary. Yeah. That it leads your eyes up. Up. Mm-hmm. The creativity and the skill. I yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go ahead. While I was looking at those, I thought they didn't they weren't on scaffolds up there carving those Yes. Yes. They didn't carve them on the ground and put them And then hoist them? I that is a good question. Oh my heavens. It was a it was a dangerous prospect. Very dangerous. To, to build a cathedral, well, and it, and it would take generations. Yeah. You, the architect or the builder um, would never assume that he would see it done in his lifetime. He just automatically assumed it would either be his sons or his grandsons that would see that would have the benefit of it. And all of this was made solely for the glory of God. At this point in religious. Um, history, you did not take it, um, we don't know the names of the craftsmen, Mm -hmm. because they were doing it solely for the glory of God, and that's really important, because next week when we get to Renaissance, we'll see a reversal of that. Um, I, I wanted you to see these wrought iron brackets on the doors. Just to show you again all the vines and the flowers and the leaves because they were trying to see, this is the new heavens the new earth and don't you know that was a comfort to the people whose lives were just in the gutter you know it's just so oppressed to think that there was something new coming um, okay this is where we became quiet worshipers in, in buildings like this. Um, um, I'm going to skip ahead because I spent so much time talking about the uh, the history of how this how to build it that I didn't get to some that, of the others. That reminds me of what congregation in Burton County is it that has the building shaped like a cross? I don't know. It's it's very, very common to have... But it's the Church of Christ. Oh, okay. That's not very common. No. <laughs> that's not very common. Um, okay, so I wanted to show you the Pieta that's worshipped by Louis the Thirteenth and his son. They built this. Um, the, a lot of the kings would contribute um, statues and and be- things of beauty to um, uh, to gain concessions or blessings from the church and this is this pieta is one of them um, okay I wanted you to see the three-story because you're gonna see it change next week during the Renaissance you had this was the nave arcade and you you walk down in between those and then the second level was called the triforium and the top story was called the clear story. And as you can see, they filled it with light and colored glass. Um, okay. okay, I just want you to see the north and the south windows and then we'll, we'll close. Um, 
the, uh, if you were coming in from the fields and you were in servitude toward the nobleman, um, can you imagine what it would have been like to enter and see the glory of these colors? It, it, they used jewel tones to represent the jewels that were going to be in heaven. And so the north window in particular is all about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and the coming of the Messiah and the virgin birth. Where, and this is what it looks like from the outside. These tra are called traceries. And, um, okay, now I want to show you the south window. The south rose window is from the New Testament. Now, everything that the prophets, the law and the prophets have been, you know, proclaiming about the coming of the Messiah is represented in the south window of the coming of the Savior. He's surrounded by saints and apostles whose lives were centered on him. And that's, I think, where we have to end for today. I hope you've uh, gained some kind of new insight into uh, what it was like to, to be living at that time and to understand the value of something that was so beautiful to lift you out of yourself and to think about paradise and what it would be like to live with Jesus. Do you think in World War II it had that effect on Parisians as well? I think so. It, it, it would have made it. it. Yeah. It has been so important. It was where Napoleon crowned himself. It was where Charles de Gaulle was buried after World War II. Um, it, it kind of embodies the life of the spiritual life of the church in um, the Catholic Church in Paris. There are many other beautiful, beautiful churches in Paris. Um, I wish I could have taken you to Saint Chapelle because it's my favorite. But which one? Saint Chapelle. Yeah, it was a. It's just a chapel, so none of the extravagance. Oh, it's the most extravagant thing I've ever seen in my life. But when you walk in, you just feel your whole body just go, oh, God is so big. I was on a track trip in 1960, ready to go track trip. And we stayed at the hotel in St. Charles. We walked, I walked out on the sidewalk for some reason uh -huh. in front, and there was a motorcade. And it was Charles E. Gaul. <gasps> I, I was as close as <laughs> <laughs> And wow. he was about 6'5 or so. Oh, yeah. Guy Big guy. In a convertible. No, and I read, or I was keeping up so long, <coughs> I read that it was his first or maybe only trip to, to America. Wow. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for contemplating thank these you. things with me today. And next week, Emily and I will take you to Italy and the birthplace of the Renaissance. Birthplace of the Renaissance. Birthplace of the Renaissance.